So we are actually going to have a preacher who was born in Malaysia next week. It's not Angeline. It's Xiao Chong, who's the uh, editor of The Banner. And uh, you won't get to meet him, though. He'll actually be on the screen. So great news and maybe less great news. But either way, Xiao Chong is going to lead us in the preaching of the word next week, which means this is the third of the Esther series, and then we're going to skip a week, and then we are going to uh, conclude it when I get back from serve. So today we're looking at Esther 5, 6, and 7. I will again read an abridged version, which will be on the screen, so you can uh, follow along with me. Starting in Esther 5, then. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance, and when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching up to the height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my, peti my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
Just as the king returned home from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while he, she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, attending the king said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. This is the word of the Lord. And this is my coffee break cup, so everything in Angeline's testimony is connected today. Anyone ever play Uno? Does that look like an Uno reverse card? Yeah, we grew up playing that. Okay, my kids grew up playing that. Was it around when I was a kid? No, no, okay. It was just my kids then. When you play Uno with two people, the reverse card really doesn't do anything, right? Because the reverse from you to me is still my turn. When you play with three or four or five, it's one of the most annoying cards because you're all lined up, at least if you're competitive and you're excited because it's coming to your turn. And you've already said uno, which means I only have one card left, as you probably know. And then it comes to you, and the person before you puts down the reverse and goes all the way back around the other way, and you've got to keep waiting. Do you know why there's so many no U-turn signs around? Because U-turns are annoying, and they're difficult. They're annoying to the person who needs to make them because you know you've made a mistake. I think my first GPS thing that I had in my car many moons ago said when you made a mistake or made a wrong turn or turned where it didn't want you to, at the next safe place, make a U-turn. In other words, you've done wrong. Get going in a different direction. U-turns and Uno and reverses are some of those changes and shifts in life that strike us, that stand out for us. The book of Esther is full of reverses. So starting with what we've already done, Esther replaced Vashti as queen. That was the first two chapters. It's sort of a, a setup for the whole deal that's going on. Esther, a Jewish person, Vashti, a Persian person, right? They, they exchange places, they exchange roles. A Jewish person comes to power in that role, and it hints at it, it sets up all kinds of other reverses that are going to take place in this story. And again, if you looked at the YouTube from the Bible project that we sent out, you would see that in the entire structure, and feel free to look at that again. And then we see Haman plans the demise of the Jews, and so as we come into chapter 5, we've sort of set up the story this far through the first four chapters that it looks like Mordecai is going to die, all the Jews are going to die, and Esther will probably die first because she's going to go to the king uninvited, which is against the law, and she has said in that case, if I perish, I perish. That's where we step in today's into today's story. And so Esther enters uninvited into the presence of the queen, and if you read our, our uh, preview notes, I said there, I so wish I hadn't read Esther before. I so wish I could read it anew and not know what's going to happen, because there's so many twists and turns in this. So when you already know the story, you know, oh, yeah, 
it's going to go well. Man, you don't, you don't have that intensity, you don't have that excitement, you don't have that, I wonder what's going to go on. Try and imagine if you possibly can, or maybe you haven't heard this story before, the feeling of walking in knowing that I'm not invited, he hasn't talked to me in a month, if he is in a bad mood, I'm done. But when he saw, when King Xerxes saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. That's the sign. And so she went up and touched it, and she was saved. The first hint of how things are going to go as we move forward. And then there's some building of suspense. Um, you probably know this, but the Bible has been the best-selling book in the world forever. And some of that is because there's lots of Christians and we highly promote people having Bibles and we give them away and we use lots of them. We have a whole collection of them in this building and so on. But a better reason for the Bible to be the best-selling book in the world is because it's actually an incredibly brilliant book. Now, people say that about Chaucer and Shakespeare and how many of us love taking the course on Chaucer or Shakespeare, especially Chaucer, can't even understand them. I can't anyways, you can, I'm sure. Right? The Bible isn't only an amazing, high-selling book because it can, contains the truth of Jesus Christ. It is so because it's brilliantly written literature, and Esther is one incredible example of that. And so it, of course, as any good book should, builds suspense. If it pleases the king, replies Esther when, she, when he says, what, sh what can I do for you? Let the king, together with Haman, come today to a, bake, a banquet that I have prepared for him. Now, Esther walks in, probably terrified, gets the scepter extended to her, gets the pardon, gets the permission to speak, gets asked anything you want up to half the kingdom. And she says, yeah, I'm not going all in here. I'm not going to tell you the real thing. How about you come to a banquet that I'm going to have today? You'll see a little later she asks for another one. She slows the process down, and then it gets ramped up emotionally because every good story requires that you get engaged emotionally with what's going on. If it's just words on a page, if it's just stuff happening as facts, you kind of lose, right? That's why every show on television, every movie has music with it. It draws us in, right? That's why Ruth Ann does all the stuff she does to get us ready for the sermon. Thank you. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits because he had been invited by the queen. He was the only guest other than the king invited to this banquet. And if you've been following this story at all, both the king and Haman are full of themselves, right? They are narcissists. They are all about themselves. And so he is tickled. But the problem with being highly emotional in one direction is you often become highly emotional in the other direction. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Let me pause here, because, again, if you know anything about the story, it's pretty easy to figure out Mordecai's the good guy, Haman's the bad guy, and we're all going, I'm on Mordecai's team, and I'm not on Haman's team, right? And if you're not there, then we should talk. But I do want to have you just switch a little bit, because we often want to think, don't we, that evil runs quite simply like this. Sorry, folks. These are the evil people. These are the good people, right? Let me be fair. These are the evil people. These are the good people. The fact is, every single one of us is a mixture of those things, 
right? So as you listen to this story and as you have to bump into Haman because he's in the story, recognize this, you may, you may do this too. You may see other people who for whatever reason you don't like and anger wells up within you and like Haman, who do you want to blame? Them. It's Mordecai's fault. Mordecai makes me angry. And so if you have anybody in your world who can make you angry or you can say they can make you angry, you need to own the fact that you have an inner Haman as well as an inner Mordecai that all of us, and that's why the Bible is full of stories, all of us live into all of these things and at different times we need to lean into different characters and what they're experiencing. Haman was filled with rage against Mordecai. But of course, Haman was filled with rage because he was a narcissist and full of himself. It had nothing to do with Mordecai. Mordecai was simply a man who was standing there doing what he had always done. Pride goes before the fall. A version of that comes from Proverbs 16, by the way. And that's not all, Haman. Notice he's back with his family. He's bragging to them. He says, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow as well. He'd been bragging himself up completely. And you know, in any good story, right, you watch any television series, any television show, any movie, any book you read, let's also read books, of course, as you move through the story, when you see somebody being built up like this, when they're so full of themselves that you can see it dripping from them, you know probably by the end of this thing, something's going to happen there that's going to take this person a few steps down. Pride goes before the fall is wisdom. It's proverb. And proverb is just saying this. That's the way things usually work in this world. If you are too full of yourself, there's a good chance you're going to trip on that somewhere along the way. Then this dangerous delight. This is the family's encouragement to Haman. Have a pole set up. If you learned this story a long, long time ago, like I did, you heard gallows, but pole is actually far more accurate. Reaching to the height of 50 cubits. Cubit is from here to here, about a foot and a half, so that's about 75 feet high, 23 meters if you need metric. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. And then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Are you listening to this? Let's set up a pole, skewer a guy on there like he's a shish kebab, Let's go have a party because that won't affect us. And this suggestion delighted Haman. You're allowed to hate all this stuff about him, right? That's a positive emotion in this, in this kind of a context, right? There's real, actual, genuine ugliness and evil inside of him. And then remember last week we talked about how God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's so clearly and obviously at work. These are a couple of more instances of that. That night the king could not sleep. Uh, I was talking with somebody a little while ago, and their time is 4.30 in the morning. Mine's 3.30 in the morning. If I wake up at 3.30 in the morning, look at my clock, I know God's probably got something to say to me. There's something going on that he wants me to pay attention to, right? God can be, not always, can be in digestion, I guess, but God can be the one who wakes you up at strange times and tries to grab your attention, pay attention to what you dream, what you think about when you wake up, what's going on. And what happens for the king is, he says, bring me the minutes of synod so that I can read them and fall back asleep because they're really boring. Similar to that, he said, bring me the annals of, bring me the record of all the things that I've done in my life. 
I don't know, maybe they wrote them really interestingly because, you know, they wanted the king to love them when they read, but chances are it was just a really long record making sure everybody knew all the laws that had been passed and all the things that had been done. But as he's listening to that story about himself, again, a little bit of a narcissist, he comes to the point where it was said that Mordecai revealed a plot by two of the guys who stood at the door, two guys who had easy access to the king, that they were going to assassinate him. And the king says, well, what have we done for this, Mordecai? And they say, nothing. And then this is God's timing for sure. Now Haman had just entered the court. So remember, he, got, he couldn't sleep, which makes it the middle of the night. Let's say it's 2.30 in the morning. And Haman is so excited about what? Impaling Mordecai that in the middle of the night, he's going to go to the king because he's anticipating that he's going to have his plan carried out. And he walks in right at the time where the king's going, how do we honor Mordecai? And he hears footsteps. Who's that? It's Haman. He gets better if you like suspense. Oh, the irony, the dripping irony. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now I thought about this. What would that feel like? How does that look? And I thought to myself, what if one of you came to me and said, Pastor Eric, how should we honor our favorite pastor of all time. And I would say, no, nah, that's not what I was going to say. Whatever you're thinking, that's not what I was going to say. And I would say, pretty sure that's Jim Ben Wielden, because he remembers everybody's story better than they remember their own story, and thank you for telling me that so many times already. I would know, it's probably not me, maybe someday for a couple of you, that'd be cool, right? But I'd be really aware that, like all of you, I have enough doubts about who I am. I already know what I can't do very well that I wouldn't be thinking, of course, everybody wants to honor me. I've been here a year and a half already. Look at this. It's amazing. No, I'd go, and then I would think, if it was me, what would I want? Right? How would I want to honor somebody in a way that I think would be deeply honoring? And I would think, let's find a way to find highlights of lives touched by this person and say them. None of that happens here, by the way. Free to self-destruct, I call this, because Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Oh, the height of arrogance there. We lost all of them and this one. Oh, that's cool. That's, you're just scaring me. I get it. Free to self-destruct. That's what's going to happen there if that keeps happening. You see, we have free will. Evil people have free will. Good people have free will. We're all bumping into each other's free will. We also say God is in control. Remember the conversation Peter and I had sitting on the stage up here. One of the ways that God uses circumstances to bring about his good truth in the end is allowing people to do their crazy, selfish, narcissistic, evil things, and in the process, self-destructing. Pride goes before the fall. Evil naturally self-destructs in the end. Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? He walks into this one. And so he has to bring, as you know from the story, Mordecai, and he puts a robe on him, and he has to put him on a, on a horse and walk around and say, this is how the king honors those he delights in. Can you imagine that? I know none of you have any enemies, but pretend you have an enemy. Okay, their name is in your mind, all right. You know, you have to take them on a horse, 
and walk them around and say, this is the greatest person in the world. Everybody look, this is the greatest person in the world, but inside, it's killing you. Because you're having a hard time believing that because you don't believe it, right? So he goes home, he's mortified, he feels horrible, and his advisors and his wife say to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. So the same people who said, you know what you need to do, get a really big pole, are now saying, yeah, we see others are going, you don't stand a chance. And remember how we said that God isn't mentioned in this book? Is of Jewish origin is probably the, this is the hardest time for the author not to use God. Because really what he wants to say is, because Mordecai believes in God, you don't stand a chance. But in the process of saying, we're not going to use God's name, we're going to hint at it. The Jewish people, the people of God of the Old Testament, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. By the way, when you read your Bible, the text Bible, the beginning of chapter 7, which is where we are now, it says, Haman impaled. And I'm thinking to myself, come on, how about the first-time reader? You ruined the story before they got there by writing what's going to happen, right? If you watch Netflix or television or anything and they give you a preview, they don't tell you who's going to die and who's not going to die, right? They let you see that? I'm not sure why the Bible did that. That's an aside, not that important for the sermon. Now, timing the delivery. As they were drinking wine on the second day, so this is the second feast, the second day, and the third time that the king says, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And I want you to pause and note her incredible patience with carrying out God's will. To me, first time the scepter's out, I'm going, God's giving it to us. I'm going straight in and saying, it's Haman. This is what he's doing. You got to stop this. She waits. She waits. And even when we're dealing with all the things that are rotten and messy in this world, and we have to wait because we don't have an option, we don't get to go stand before the king, recognize that sometimes this doesn't happen in the timing that we want it to happen. Most of us are slightly impatient, is what I'm saying, right? Sometimes these things happen in God's time and at his pace. And then things go from bad to worse. Esther said, and look at how she delivers this line, the last word of the statement is Haman. She builds it up by saying, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Right? If you ever have to accuse somebody, put their name right at the end. It builds up the tension as you go along. Again, brilliant writing by our author here. To worse. So Haman knows he's accused. The king goes out in a rage. You know he's really mad because it says right in the text, he left his wine, and he never seemed to leave his wine behind. He left his wine and walked out in a rage. He was so mad. And then when he comes back, Haman is down on his knees before the queen because he wants to plead for his life, and it looks like he's going to attack her. And when the king says that, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? The turnaround is immense. Then here's the great reversal. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. They impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. The anger which we direct towards other, others sometimes undermines and hurts us in an equal or more powerful way. We need to be deeply aware of that simple truth. 
But also understand this, that this great reversal in this story, it's the key to the story, it's the turnaround of the story, but it's also simply the way God works all the time in this world. Now, Ruthann already gave away my punchline because earlier she was talking about Jesus and how he was killed by hanging on the cross, but okay, I'm going to mention it again because it's kind of central to our, our story. The greatest reversal ever is quoted in Acts about seven times. I picked Acts 10. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. They impaled Jesus, if you will, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen so that people could be witnesses of this. So in the story of Haman and Mordecai, the great reversal is that which was going to kill Mordecai was used to kill Haman, the accuser. And on the cross, he said, no, but wait a minute, Pastor Eric, Jesus actually did die on the cross. But what do we profess? What was killed on the cross? Sin and death. The Haman stuff of this world was destroyed on the cross. That's why Jesus couldn't stay dead, because he was life, he was God, he was truth, right? And everywhere in our life, this pattern continues to carry itself out. And so we need to be a people of hope who understand this simple fact that whatever seems like it is attacking you, undermining you, taking you down, God's gonna find a way in his time, through his people, through obedience, through love, to turn that around put a U-turn in your life. Do you know what repentance is? It's a word that really means turn around, U-turn. Change your mind, think differently. God calls us by saying, look, you're in a story where the final answer always is whatever is heading in the wrong direction, you're gonna smash into a wall, gets turned around into the right direction for the goodness of God's plan and for the benefit of his people. And so we need to hang on to hope. When we're living in a world where we're going, boy, this is messed up. Boy, there's a lot of evil things going on around us. When you're living in a circumstance yourself, man, this is, this is overwhelming, this is painful, this is difficult. Hang on to that hope that in God's story, in the story that he invites us into, he does these great reversals and turn things back onto the track in which they're meant to go. Now, I wish I could tell each one of you exactly when that's gonna happen in your story and for your circumstance, but we know sometimes that release comes in our passing and in death when we're relieved from pain, like Ellie Zanting was this week. Other times it happens along the way when we experience healing or we experience restored relationships. But the key for us all is that by faith, in every circumstance and in every moment, we hang on to that hope that this can yet happen. This may happen soon. This may happen in a little while. This can happen because that's God's way in the world. Every story shows us that when God's involved, as things look like they're heading towards evil, there's a really good chance that he's going to turn it around to good. Hang on to that hope. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, as your people, we don't always see you at work, but we pray that you'd help us to trust, to hang on to faith, to believe that even when things seem darkest and most difficult, that this is your world, that's your hand, that you'll find a way to bring it towards truth. Help us to celebrate moments when we see this happening around us. Help us to tell that story of our own the way Angela did today. 
And we pray, Angeline did today, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will guide us forward as a people who live by hope and not in fear, that you will find a way to bring your truth to bear. This we pray in your name. Amen.